We're jumping in. I'll begin here. Uh, there's a guy named Kerry Newhoff who has written several leadership books, and one of them most recently was called Didn't See It Coming. And in Didn't See It Coming, he talked about seven challenges that no one expects and everyone experiences. And one of those things that he talked about was compromise, how we all experience this temptation to enter into this space of compromise, that it's possible short-term to be extremely successful and morally bankrupt in the short-term. It's possible to exist in both realities. I I say short-term because character always has the last laugh, and compromise is who we are no longer lines up with who we had hoped to be. If who you are, and it doesn't line up with who you hoped to be, and so within this short-term framework, the formula could say that competency determines capacity, that competency determines capacity. And so therefore, the kind of, if that's the kind of ideology that you uh, understand, then you network and you go to conferences and you get educated. And if you get the competency that you need, you have the capacity to go as far as you want. You just have to become the smartest person in the room. But in reality, whether it's in church leaders, sadly, athletes, business leaders, industry moguls, addiction and affairs and abuse and embezzlement and greed and ego and so on, all can unravel someone's life. So if competency, therefore, doesn't determine capacity, what does? Terry Newhoff goes on to say, like it or not, character, not competency, determines capacity. He says, your, your competency leaves the first impression but your character, your integrity leaves the lasting one. The crowd is intrigued by your competence, but your family and your close friends are influenced by your integrity. See, your character is the glass ceiling to your capacity. He goes on to say, sadly, if you don't nurture your character daily, you can be most admired by the people who know you least, while the people who know you best struggle with you the most. Therefore, work twice as hard on your character as you do on your competency. Character or integrity is critical to our lives. Integrity is about truth. It's about not a disjointed life, but a united life. Not a life that has me living in this way over here and in this way over here, saying this in one way, living in this way another way. It's rejecting distortion and it's embracing honesty. It's not about flattery. It's about reality. So we're in a series called Redeeming Our Rule. And so we've talked about rule, which includes your work. You're called to rule through your work. We spent several weeks talking about redeeming that aspect of our work. We've talked about how our rule includes the Great Commission, things that Josh even mentioned just a few minutes ago. We talked about how rule includes prayer. We talked about the power of prayer last Sunday. But rule also includes our responsibility of our lives and taking ownership of our hearts, allowing your interior life to parallel with your exterior life. So this morning, I want to consider how we as followers of Jesus are called to be a people of integrity. We as followers of Jesus are called to be people of integrity, where our lives are not just ruled by this world, but where our hearts are free from compromise. 
So we see this desire this morning, which is this, that we are uh, called to rule through an untangled heart. That's where I want to go, the title of the sermon this morning, Ruling Through an Untangled Heart. So immediately after Genesis 1, we get this mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and subdue it. Right after that, in Genesis chapter 3, we meet the protagonist. We see it in Genesis 3. The first point I have for us this morning is that Satan's plan for you is to keep you from imaging God. Satan's plan for you is to keep you from imaging God. Genesis chapter 3. I'd love to read a few verses to you, with you, starting in verse 1. We meet the protagonist. Now the serpent, Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, shall, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed the fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. So we meet... The protagonist, the villain, the uh, archetyped protagonist is now introduced. And his job that we see very early on, even within these few verses, that his job is to dethrone God and to ruin the image bearers God has made. So he does it a thousand different ways, and we see it throughout the rest of the scriptures and to this day, thousands of different ways, but nonetheless, his desire is to allow anything to rule over you but God. His one attempt is to get anything, it doesn't have to be him, anything to rule over you but God. And so we see in this text that he questions God's character. He tries to motivate with cynicism, allowing one thing again for God to not rule over his creation. See, his names vary. I don't know if you're aware of this. Satan has a variety of different names that are used throughout the Old and New Testament. They speak to his motives and his desire to ruin your life and mine. The one most common that Jesus used in Matthew 4 was the name Satan. It means adversary or uh, enemy or opposer. And its name, again, is most often used 52 times throughout the scripture, 36 in the New Testament. The second title that's given is the, the name devil, which means slander. It's the second most common, most used name in the scripture. It's used 34 times in the New Testament to refer to him, devil. The third would be the evil one. We get that from 1 John 5 as an example. It's the third most used name of Satan, and it represents his nature. His nature, uh, evil one. He has uh, motives and his desire is to ruin. They are evil to the core. 
The next one I think is important to recognize is that he is the father of lies, Jesus called him in John 8. He's the father of lies. He's the originator of lies. See, Satan lied when he tempted to our first parents, and he's doing so again today. Last two names I'll mention is one that he's the tempter. He's the tempter, and he's consistently tempting us. And then lastly, uh, he's the dragon we see in Revelation chapter 12. Again, these names communicate a lot about who he is, how he operates, his motives and work in our lives and this world to this day. He doesn't care, again, about who rules your life, as long as God is not ruling your life. C.S. Lewis colors this in. I mentioned this several weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. In the Screwtape Letters, this beautiful set of letters that uh, that C.S. Lewis put together, and his desire, his hope is to allow these two characters. Um, one is uh, Screwtape, who is an uncle to Wormwood, these two fictional characters. And he writes, the uncle writes to his nephew to try to, they're both demons, and the, he's writing to his nephew to teach his nephew on how to be a good demon. So we have these multiple letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to give us a picture of how demons and how the work of darkness is happening in our day and time. And in one of the letters that Screwtape wrote to Wormwood, uh, we read this, this chunk right here. As this condition becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and his habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, for that is what habit for, uh, fortunately does to a pleasure. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. He goes on to say, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And to the demon, the enemy is God. The one attempt to separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What is C.S. Lewis telling us through this story? He's saying, Satan doesn't care who rules over your life as long as it isn't God. That's what we get there. The rest of the Bible unpacks this, but suffice it to say, Satan's plan for you is to keep you from imaging God. Second point is this. Like the church in Ephesus, we need to remember our identity to keep our hearts from becoming entangled. Paul lived with the church in Ephesus, the people in Ephesus, walked among the people at Ephesus, ate meals with his brothers and sisters in Ephesus for three years. Deep, substantial relationships were built during that time. We know so much about the church in Ephesus Throughout the scripture, we have the book of Acts, we have Ephesus, the actual letter, we have Timothy, who was an elder in Ephesus, and we have the book of Revelation, where he writes to one of the churches in Ephesus. 
We saw that the movement of Jesus goes north out of Jerusalem, and it goes north, it goes west, it hits Asia Minor. The gospel spreads like wildfire in the first century, which is why we pray for God to move mightily, because God has moved mightily, God is moving mightily, and he will move mightily, and we want to be a part of what God is doing. So we learned about Ephesus. It was this magnificent city. We talked a good bit about it when we went through the letter last year. It was a port city, which means that boats would come in. There was a lot of uh, commerce that was taking place in Ephesus. Ships would go through Ephesus. It was a booming economic headquarters. So there's a few similarities to what we have. It was quite busy for that day and time. A quarter million people lived in this city uh, named Ephesus. It had three trade routes converged in that city. It was a, as close to an ancient uh, New York City as you get. It was bustling. It was busy. It was also filled with idolatry, all types of idolatry. It was filled with uh, a varying set of gods and goddesses. It had a massive temple to the worship of the goddess of Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana. In Greek mythology, she was the daughter of Zeus and was immortal as the hunting god. So we see the, the worship of this goddess existed throughout the city of Ephesus, but not just the worship of this goddess, it was also the worship of Caesar that existed in the city of Ephesus, that the governmental rule over that area required a level of nationalism and even worship to their nation in that time. So there was busyness, there was idolatry all across the board, and then you have this little city on a hill, this little place that was salt in this area. And Paul, he sat in a jail at this moment. And he likely chained with a Roman surveillance around the clock. And he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. After three years there, knowing that his life was coming to an end pretty soon. He knew it was going to be put to death. And he wrote with candlelit, with a stench from the quarters that he was living in. Surely he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus to encourage them, to inspire them, to make sure that they stayed the course. And he wrote this letter to them. Two times in the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, we read the word prisoner, that Paul was a prisoner. One time we read that he was in chains. And this is how he wrote the letter. In chapters one and two, he wrote to remind them of who they were becoming, who they were. He says in 1 and 2, remember God's pursuit, remember God's love, remember God's redemption, remember God's forgiveness, his promised Holy Spirit, remember his hope, remember his inheritance, remember the rich mercy that he's chased you down with, remember his exceedingly kind pursuit, remember who you have become. He begins this letter by trying to remind them again as he's in chains writing to them. He's trying to reorient their minds. Don't get too busy that you lose sight of who you are called to be. Don't allow the idolatry of your day to keep you from who you are invited to be. He goes on to say, and I'll use the message paraphrase here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says this, it wasn't so long ago, he writes, in a paraphrase version, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us doing what we felt like doing when we 
uh, when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. I mean, that phrase that Eugene Peterson uses in this, in this version, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. He's writing to this church, reminding them of where they once were. John Mark Comer says it like this, that deception or temptation is always twofold. One is to seize autonomy from God, and two, to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our ears and the inclination of our hearts rather than that truth in the loving word of God. So while in chains, he reminds them of God's rich mercy, that God in that place chased them down with extravagant love, brought grace and kindness to them to lead them to repentance. And in the remainder of the letter, in the following few chapters, Paul wants to cheer on this church as he's in chains. He might be held down, but you can imagine his heart is filled with vigor to remind that church to not lose heart. In chapter 4 and 5, he says, I want you to walk out who you are. I want your exterior life to reflect your interior life. If you are these people who have been ransomed and forgiven and extended grace and saints set apart, actually, I want you to walk that out. I want you to be a people of integrity. So in chapter 4 and 5, we read these two sections. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, same letter, same chains, same moment, same candle, same stench. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one body. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He gives them this reminder to put off the ways that you once lived because you've been made new. Remember who you are and now walk it out. Don't allow your life to be a double life where your interior life is one way and your exterior life is another. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to walk out who you are. I want you to live a life of integrity where your interior life, who you are, who God has ransomed you to be, actually is who you are living out in your life. Again, just shortly after, again, Paul in chains, he says in Ephesians 5, 1, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then verse 8, he says, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Another way to put it, live out a life of integrity. Allow your exterior life to reflect your interior life. 
And then finally, in chapter 6, as he closes out this letter, you can imagine his hand's probably cramping up a little bit. He's finishing this thing up here, and when he does, he gives them this closing picture that is this beautiful reminder of the moment that we're in, even to this day, and this picture that he provides. It says this in Ephesians 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. I mean, some trust in horses. Others trust in chariots. But he says, I want you to trust in the name of your Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened, and this picture he gives, fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He gives them this picture of alertness, this picture of readiness, picture that reflects who they are and who God has ransomed them to be, recognizing the temptations of the enemy and to be alert in light of that. See, this wonderful book is a reminder to all of us to not be entangled or let our hearts be ensnared again, but to let our integrity rule us as we submit to Jesus. See, like the church in Ephesus, we need a reminder. We need to remember our identity to keep our hearts from becoming entangled, which leads to the third point. Now, there are three major contributors to keep us from a life of integrity. There are three major contributors. The first is this. We already mentioned him, the devil. He is the kingdom of the air, the scripture says. There's a ruler, and his name is the devil, and he's brought a fog to our day. From afar, a fog can be nice, can be pretty. As you're driving down the road and you see a fog from afar, it's something. But then when you get in it, it's very different. It's not worth taking a picture of because you can't see anything, right? In a fog, you can't see your left hand from your right at times. A, A fog, you can't see a tree that's right in front of you. A fog, you can't see a turn if you're driving. A fog, if you're in the densest of a fog, you slow down tremendously if you're driving because you don't know what's right in front of you. And in the same way, Satan has brought a fog in our day and in our time. We don't understand this world until we take this dimension of reality into consideration. That his goal is to get us to not trust God the Father or our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he can just keep us from trust. We won't obey. And his simple desire is just to keep us from trust. He's desperately trying to make us believe that God is not loving He's a jealous tyrant who's holding out on you. You can't trust God, he says, but instead you can trust yourself. Because again, he doesn't care if you don't believe in him. He simply wants you to trust in something that's not God. So trust 
in yourself. He would love for you to believe. Trust in your own wisdom. Trust in your own feelings. Therefore, define good and evil on your own. Transgress your limitations and become your own God. That is all he wants. And he is one of the three major contributors to keep us from a life of integrity. The second would be our flesh, our cravings, our desires, referring to our fallen, self-centered human nature. 1 John 2.16 says that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And our flesh will constantly keep us from being in alignment to living in a life of integrity. So this feeds off the devil's lies. If we believe that the, uh, the devil is true in the sense that God can't be trusted and we in return trust ourselves, man, our flesh is fueled and it plays out in disordered desires that I will become the captain of my own soul. Though our sin is forg- forgiven by grace through faith, uh, the presence of sin and the power of sin remains. The easiest way to understand it is this, the penalty of sin has been dealt with. On the cross, if you've put your trust in Jesus, the penalty of our sin has been dealt with. We were saved from sin's penalty. But the power of sin is continuing to exist today. We are being saved from sin's power. And the presence of sin will continue to exist until Jesus comes again. See, our flesh is the ongoing power and presence of sin in our lives, disordering our desires. And that would be the second contributor to keeping us from a life of integrity. The third would be our world that we live in. It's pervasive. It can be oppressive. The air we breathe, the world is what we swim in. The motive of the Tower of Babel is alive and well and, dare I say, thriving. Human society simply organized itself against God. That's what the world is. It is a rejection of the presence and lordship of Jesus, masked in all kinds of things, some that are blatant and some that are very subtle. Again, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. Everything the devil promoted and our flesh affirmed becomes the norm in the world we live in. The devil, flesh, and the world are three major contributors to keeping us from a life of integrity. See, there is a war for your heart to clutter it, to tangle it, and we are summoned to rule it by surrender to Jesus with a life of integrity. I don't know if we recognize that everything, the flesh, the world, the devil, are working against God's design, keeping us from our distinct identity. That's why Jesus, when he taught us to pray, and we talked about this last week, Rabbi, teach us how to pray. Begins with our Father in heaven. Remember that you are a child of God. Remember who you are by faith in Jesus. And just a few movements later in the prayer, he says, Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. He recognizes that there's a war for your soul and you are secure in your Father, but he wants to remind you of this war through the Lord's prayer. So we see. Now, there are three major contributors, which leads us to our last point, which is this, that we stand firm through a life of confession. We stand firm through a life of confession. See, in this journey of life, until kingdom come, when the presence of sin is eradicated, 
We are summoned to stand firm and becoming the people Jesus has invited us to be. We read it in Ephesians 6. We read to put on the former armor of God to, to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We continued on when we read um, to, to stand firm in this day. We read it in 1 Peter 5, 8, where he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Lastly, Philippians 4, 1 Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See, we're called to stand firm. You can't rule and live into who God has called you to be as a parent, as a friend, as a coworker, as an employee, as a manager, as a neighbor, if you're enslaved and entangled. If you are being ruled, you can't rule. If you're in chains, you can't live out a life of freedom that Jesus invites you to be. So stand firm on who you are. The question is how? How do we stand firm? A practice and tool that helps us stand firm is through confession. Through confession. Rule with an untangled heart through confession. See, confession is where we turn to him Jesus, and we invite him to heal our lives. We need the gift of confession. I need the gift of confession. I am a man of unclean lips, unclean hands, impure hearts. My life can be a mockery of who I want to be. I'm tempted with pride and ego and control and shame. Tempted with the same old lie from the very beginning. Called to rule with confession. There's a story in John 8 that's beautiful. I won't get into all the details, but we find in this story a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And these scribes and Pharisees brought this woman in the deepest elements of her shame to Jesus as he's in a temple teaching. And they bring this woman into the temple, and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses said, For one who was caught in the act of adultery, they should be stoned. What do you say? Trying to test him because they wanted to put him to death. And Jesus didn't play their games. He never did. He never would. And he simply, I can imagine this woman in the depths of her shame. Not just by herself in shame, but publicly shamed. You can imagine she's doing whatever she can to hide herself from the moment. I can imagine that she's kind of curled up into a ball. And I can imagine that Jesus came over to her. We don't see this in the text, but we know he bent down and he wrote something in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote, but I can imagine he got pretty close to her. And he began to write something in the dirt. Have you ever written something in the dirt? You can hear it. And so he's, she's hearing the noise of Jesus writing something. And, and they persist, and they persist. The Pharisees and the scribes do. And Jesus finally st- stands up in their persistence. And he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
I mean, it's silenced. And all of a sudden, doom, doom, doom. These rocks begin to fall as these ones who are ready to pelt her from oldest to youngest begin to drop the stones that they had in their hands and they leave. And all that's left is Jesus and this woman. And he says, where are they? Have they condemned you? And she said, no. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. So when we understand, this is why A.W. Tozer, when he said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. When you understand Jesus' heart of kindness and care and grace and mercy, it enables you to live a life of confession. If you think he's naturally angry at you just like your dad was growing up, or your guardian, or your mom growing up, and you think that Jesus' heart towards you is similar to your guardian, you're not going to be able to live a life of confession. But when you see the heart of Jesus, like in this story, as an example, you're able to do this. See, we, like her, are face down in shame. We, like her, hear the, the, the fingerprint of Jesus writing in the dirt. And this is what's so powerful about this moment that can change us, that that kind of love that we can't outrun is the very thing that can free our hearts. See, confession brings light that enables healing. See, when we are face down, we can hear this promise of love. See, living a life of integrity is, about, is not about having it together, but about letting who we already are shape who we are becoming. Confession is about putting light in areas of darkness within our lives exposing it, allowing our exterior life to mirror our interior life. It's not living a life of perfection, but confessing and repenting and turning externally to mirror who we are internally. Eugene Peterson says that God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation, as if it were a, a gangrenous leg. I was nervous about that word, honestly. Gangrenous leg, leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us. And when he forgives us, there's more of us, not less. See, confession isn't about failure, but it's a tool for freedom. And confession, confession doesn't decrease as you grow in maturity. Confession increases as you journey into maturity. True Christian maturity is a growth in confession, not a decrease. We don't become a people of love without confession being the very thing that drives us along the way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. See, Jesus has given us the opportunity to rule and experience freedom. God's grace is more powerful than our sin. And we're invited to rule, yes, in our work, yes, in the Great Commission, yes, in our praying, but also in our inner life. Not with compromise, but letting integrity through the Lordship of Jesus guide us. So I don't know where you are. I don't, I don't know what the last six months, three months of your life look like. I don't know if you've, through stress, adopted porn into your life afresh and told nobody. I don't know if you have an unhealthy emotional relationship at work. I don't know if you have an unbridled desire and drive for money, greed, ego, and living with consistent uh, excessiveness in alcohol. And we're invited to rule through an untangled heart, through confession. 
And whether it's you in that regard or man, just areas of pride in your life and confession, we're invited into that space. Maybe Carrie Newhoff was right, that therefore work twice as hard on your character as you do on your competency. Jesus invites us into a posture of confession that we would be able to live in a life of integrity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to stand firm. Knowing the schemes of the enemy would do all kinds of things to keep us, prevent us from becoming the people you've invited us into being. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to know who you've called us to be. And even in this moment of confession before the Lord's table, Lord, I do ask that you would help our hearts return to you. As the woman experienced, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let your grace motivate us to live the life you've invited us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.